All right, so let's turn to James chapter 1. Last week we did take a a brief uh, hiatus from our study through James so Pastor Andy could uh, preach really from his heart, just coming back from overseas, and just the, the call to missions, the call that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Well, we're picking up now back in James. So we're at James 1, 19. This is God's holy word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. I, I, we can't ever pray too much, right? I, I, yeah, if you leave here and you say they pray too much at Covenant, I, I, that should not ever be said. So let's, let's pray and just ask for God's blessing on our time. God, we just come right now and we acknowledge our need of you. We acknowledge that sitting down, reading a book, and having a monologue seems so outdated in our culture, in our society, but yet it is the means by which you communicate your truth often to your, your, your children. So we pray, God, that you would just meet with us right now. Give us divine illumination. We pray uh, that we would leave here more conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I referenced this uh, Several months ago, I think, in a newsletter, uh, if you don't get our newsletter, one aspect of the newsletter is Andy or I do a word from the pastor, and I, I mentioned uh, this in that letter, but uh, I, I spoke of track and field, and particular event, the, the high jump. Does everybody know what I'm talking about when I say the high jump? So the, the high jump, uh, what you typically do is you would run up to it, you turn your back, you do some kind of a flop. I know there's a special name for it, I don't care. And you do the flop, your head goes first, and your shoulders, and eventually your feet. The goal is, if you hit it, don't knock the bar over. It's even better when you don't hit the bar. Uh, currently, the world record is Javier uh, Sotomayor, 2.45 meters, which in uh, feet is 8 feet one and a quarter inches. So, so think about this. It, that's almost the net of the basketball hoop. Almost. Can you imagine jumping up that high, flipping your back over a bar? It, it's really, and, and not only is that an impressive world record, it is held for almost 30 years. 1993 is when that record was established. And if you know anything on track and field, it seems like every month records are being broken because of of technology, advancements in training, diet, all that stuff, and yet this one has stayed the course. But as you continue to kind of lower where you're going in the competition, you get all the way down to junior high, they're not jumping eight feet. And more and more kids are able to, to achieve the height at the lo- younger levels. We could even lower the bar to the point that a vast majority of us 
could jump over it. It would probably be really low, but we can mostly do it as long as you can kind of be off your feet for a second and you are landing on a cushion. But it really depends on how the high the bar is determines how many people achieve the height. I think what's happened in our culture, in our society, and specifically in the church that we have lowered the bar of expectation amongst God's people so low that everybody can cross over it. And we're, we're, we're failing to appreciate that God has raised the bar a lot higher. God expects his children to walk in obedience, all of his children. It's not for the elite. It's not for Pastor Joe and Pastor Andy because they're, they're, they're pastors, so they have to live at a higher level. No, he's expecting all of us, if you claim the name of Christ, to live in obedience, to put words in action, to live out what you believe. So that's what we're going to consider today in James. Uh, the life of obedience as the, as the bare minimum bar height of expectation for you and I. In order to do that, we're going to first of all begin by looking at the foundation for obedience. We're going to see kind of where it starts, because it's going to start in the heart and mind. We're going to need to have a proper perspective on obedience when we talk obedience. And then secondly, we're going to look at the follow-through of obedience. What does it actually look like day to day? What does it look like to be men and women who put God's word to action? All right, so let's begin as we look at the foundation for obedience. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw one of the biggest trials that you and I experienced. Does anybody remember what it is? Come on, make me feel better about myself. Temptations. I don't even know if anybody said it, but we're saying temptation. Temptations is the big trial. And what we saw is God has not set us up for failure. That he's given us keys to victory that we can say yes to righteousness, no to sin. Well, he's continuing on with that charge of living out your faith actively. It's crucial to understand that this starts within. So as we look at the foundation for obedience, let's pick up at verse 19 and ask the question, where is your heart? James declares, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. First of all, notice what he's addressing, how he's addressing. He's telling them to slow down. Did you get that? Slow down. And notice what he says. Know this, my beloved brothers. This is him underscoring, highlighting, waving flags. Hey, what I'm about to say is very important. And he says, my beloved brothers. So he's not just talking to random strangers. These are people that are dear to him, people he cares for, he loves. He's, he says, know this, I, I really want you to get what I'm about to say. And he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Who here remembers playing the hand-slapping game? You know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not going to bring anybody up here to compete against me. It would be fun. Uh, but either I'll be embarrassed or I'll look really mean when I'm smacking somebody's hand. But if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, one person would have their hands out like this, another person would have their hands over, and the goal would be the person underneath smacking the person's hand before they pull it out. And I remember doing that in school, and I remember some kids were really good, some kids were really bad. And you always felt bad for the kids who were really bad because they just had left, they left lunch with red hands. And not from the smacking part, from being smacked over and over. And the kids that were really good often were the athletes, and it was, it was students who had really quick reaction times. You see, here's the problem, though. 
you and I, as followers of Christ, often are really quick. Not maybe it's smacking hands, but speaking. And that's what he, he sees. He sees the problem of that. He says, you need to be quick to hear. It's slow to speak, slow to anger. Because I think that's very countercultural for us. Most of us, if we're really being vulnerable with one another, are very, very slow to hear. Even now, I, I, I'm not naive to think everybody in here is attentively listening to every word coming out of my mouth. Some of you are thinking through, okay, like, so what are we doing after this? We got to do this. We got to, I can't wait till we eat. Uh, I can't, where are we going to eat? Hey, mom, do you know where we're going to eat? I mean, we, we have that tendency, even in conversations. And I've done enough marriage counseling where the, the wife or the husband is thinking what they're going to say before the, the, a spouse is done speaking. And I'm watching it firsthand, and they're not listening to a single word the other person's saying. And what James is saying here is, brothers, sisters, you need to slow down. Stop the speaking, start the listening, start hearing. Proverbs 4.21, he says, My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my saying. So there's that component where you and I need to, to start listening more. But not only start listening more, we need to sh- just shut up. We need to stop talking. And we're going to look a little bit later in this passage related to this. But we need to slow down. Proverbs 10, 19, it says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So let's, let's, let's speak to each other. Are you slow to hear or quick to hear? Because you need to be quick to hear. Likewise, are you fast to speak or slow to speak? And not just that, we're going to look at a little bit, but fast to anger. How quick are you to be short-tempered? So we, we need to slow down, but not only do we need to slow down, we need to bow down. And I think this is where slowing down happens. Continue on in the passage. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The reason we can slow down is the attitude of our heart. A humble spirit, when it says the receive the word with meekness. It's the idea of a humble spirit of accepting God's word, accepting God's way. Even if you have a degree of power and control, it's restraining it. It's an acknowledgement that I don't know, I need help, I need saving. And that's what he's stressing here. He's stressing that he needs God. You and I need God. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The problem is we live in a day and age where meekness and humility are viewed as weaknesses, as unimpressive. And what we tend to celebrate, what we tend to to really encourage in the world we live in is arrogance, is pride, is conceit. And you'll notice that the prideful person is quick to what? Quick to speak because they know everything. A prideful person is going to be slow to hear because they don't really care because they know it all. They're very reactionary. They're very reckless. But then notice what, what James is saying. It says that, that humble disposition, we need to receive with meekness the implanted word. We need God's word. We need God's word to be the transformative uh, part of us because that's able to save us. You see, you and I aren't able to save ourselves. 
That's why Ephesians 2 says, we're saved by grace through faith alone. Why? By grace alone, because lest we can boast. Uh, that is the issue. We, we need help outside of ourself. It's his work in us. Are you meek before the Lord? Are you meek before others? Are you open to his word? So we see where our heart is, but secondly, we need to ask what needs to depart. What needs to depart? He goes on and says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So right before that, he said what? Be slow to, say it with me, slow to anger. And then why? Because anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So what he's saying is you and I need to be aware. Aware of what? That anger has no business being in the life of a Christian. Part of our heart examination is going to need to include some soul cleaning. This is just one example, I think, of many examples of Christians and what should not be in our lives. It's not fitting for our lives. Let's imagine a scenario where you are finally committed to getting into shape. You're going to get healthy you're, you're going to lose some weight. And so you bring in a dietitian to come into your house. They come in. They look at the pantry. They look at the refrigerator. Now, a good dietitian, what's going to likely happen? They're going to go in, and as they look at that, they're probably going to have you bring the trash over. And they're going to say, okay, these ho-hos need to go. And like, but they're protein-filled, healthy, diabetic-free no, the, you know, the, the hose got to go. Like, what about the fryer? You might as well put it away because you're not, and there's going to be a lot of tears, right, in that situation. But if you're really serious, if you're really serious about health, you're going to get rid of the stuff that needs to be getting ri- gotten rid of, correct? And what James is saying, as he's looking out at these Christians dispersed in the area, is he wants them to realize Part of walking in obedience is get rid of the junk. Get rid of the old stuff. Get rid of who you used to be. You can't have both. You can't receive the implanted word and live in willful rebellion. That is, that's the double-minded man we talked about a few weeks back. Colossians 3.5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. That's what James is saying. Get rid of it. Anger, no business being in your life. All these lists of sins that Paul says, no business being in your life. Revelation chapter 2, when we went through that, if you remember the church of Pergamum, the one problem that he drilled them on was they were tolerating Balaam teaching, which was a a teaching that was centered around sexual sin. And he said, you guys are turning a blind eye to that. You're okay with that in your church, and that should not be the case. And friends, what I see happening amongst Christians today is we've gotten so comfortable We've gotten so accepting of sin in our life, these certain tolerated, acceptable sins that we don't think twice about it. Even on the area of anger, we equate somebody, well, he's just a hothead. He's got a temper. I mean, his dad had a temper. He just can't help it. 
I mean, there are some of us here today, if your children were asked, describe your dad, describe your mom, unfortunately, a lot of them would probably say, he's angry. He's angry. He's an angry guy. And that shouldn't be the case. That's, that is not in line with the follower of Christ. It does not produce the righteousness of God and said, you need to put away this filthiness. You need to put away this rampant wickedness. Big picture, the word he's really saying is you need to repent. We need to radically deal with sin, no more giving in. Well, what sins have you put away lately? Let's be honest. What sins are you really dealing with in our life? Can you notice, even in the last year, noticeable changes in your pursuit of holiness? Where, man, this was a struggle area in my life, so I've dealt with it. I've gotten rid of it. I I don't put myself in situations where I succumb to that sin as, as prevalent. You understand, this is serious stuff. This is what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are we supposed to do? Gouge it out. Friends, things need to depart in our life. That's how you see a life of obedience. So we see the foundation for obedience. We looked at where our heart is, uh, what needs to depart. Let's look at the big picture of the life of faith. It's one characterized by obedience and action. Let's look at the follow-through of obedience. Let's ask this question. Are you a doer? Are you a doer? Read verse 22 with me. He says, But be doers of the word, and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Did you notice what the word does, first of all? It reveals. Notice the comparison that he speaks of to a mirror. How how are mirrors helpful to us? It, it reveals what's going on on our face or on our body. I, I have a, a, a particular memory in my, uh, from uh, early on in my marriage that Amir was extremely helpful. So it was our first flight, Abby and I, she's looking at me like, what's he going to talk about? Um, we, we flew, I think we flew to Boston area to visit her brother who was in seminary at the time. And we went uh, on a vacation with all of them. It's the first time Abby had actually flown, and we were sitting in the back, and there was some open seats down across the aisle from us, maybe a row up, and you know, because I'm newly married, I thought it would be a good idea. Hey, I'm going to leave you here and go sit where I have a little bit more space, and yeah, I did that. I honestly did that, and Abby's like, okay, enjoy your, enjoy your flight. Well, as I'm there, I'm being really spiritual, so I'm having a quiet time, and I'm writing in my, my journal, and um, I look over at her a couple times. She just looks at me and kind of has a smile on her face, doesn't say anything. I'm like, all right, just keep doing it, you know, because I'm, I'm being cool. And then the stewardess comes up to me, and she's like, sir. And I'm like, yes. She's like, you have pen all over your face. <laughs> all over your face. And I'm like, What? And I looked down, I had like a blue gel pen, the ink had broke open. So I, every time I did this, did that, I looked like I painted my face. So I went to the bathroom and the mirror, and I looked at her, I'm like, why didn't you say anything? I'm like, you're the one who wanted to sit over there by yourself. So 
Friends, the word of God, though, in a very real sense, I mean, I know that's comical. In a very real sense, the word of God reveals sin like that mirror revealed the ink all over my face. That's what it does. It's intended to, to expose problems in our life. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God's word is meant to, to reveal the negative, but it is also to encourage the positive, to provide guidance, to provide direction. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Well, are you putting yourself before the word of God? You're not going to live a life of obedience if you're never before God's word because you're not going to know what obedience is. You're not going to know where you are being disobedient. God's word is that great mirror for our soul. But not only do we see the word reveals, we see the reader reacts. So he goes on to verse 25, but the one who looks into the law. Now, it would have made no sense if after I looked in that mirror, I would have just sat back down like, oh, cool. I'm owning it. I'm the, the ink guy. No, like I scrubbed my face till it was raw, red, getting that ink off. And that's what he's saying here. He's encouraging that the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, once the word is revealed to us, you and I naturally are to do what? To respond. Long before there was Nike, James is telling them to just do it. And notice what he gives for a quality of the law. Isn't it surprising what he calls it? It's the law of liberty. Doesn't that feel weird to you and I? Why? Why does it feel weird to say the law of God is, provides liberty? Let's imagine in our, our, our lives as children, do you feel like mom and dad's rules are liberty? No, we feel like they're restrictive, that they hold back. And that's what he's saying. No, it's, it's surprising. It's, it's not. It's, it's, it's liberty. It doesn't seem correct. But listen to what Psalm 17 declares. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. You see, obedience leads to a life of blessing. It doesn't hurt, hurt us. It keeps us safe. That's why it provides liberty. So just hopefully, as your parents are guiding and directing you in the ways of God, their rules are not restrictive. They're freeing. Well, do you have a proper view of God's word? Are you a doer? Are you blessed as a result of that? So not only are you a doer, are you a prover? He goes on to verse 26 and declares, If anyone thinks he is righteous, is religious, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he says, in reality, what he's telling them to do is put up or shut up. Prove it. You say you're a believer, you say you're walking with the Lord. I want you to show it. I want you to declare it. First of all, he says, prove it through your words. He says, this person thinks he's religious. So you, you know this person. You might be that person. You might be that individual who thinks they're really godly. And he's like, okay, back it up. Notice he says, they do not 
if they don't bridle their tongue, they deceive their heart. Twitter, how many words are you allowed on Twitter? Does anybody know? It's 140. So what that results in, if you're on Twitter, is you are limited by how much you can tweet. Now, there are those ways around it where you can reply to your own tweet and continue it on. But at the end of the day, you can't give a book, right? And what he's saying here is that you and I need to pretend like we're on Twitter of life. We need to bridle our tongue. Like what we talked about earlier, we need to be slow to quick, slow to speak, slow to anger. We're going to look at it later in chapter 3, but he's going to equate our tongue to a horse that's out of control. We're going to, he's going to compare it to a fire that is burning. So if you're truly religious, your words will be kept in check. Proverbs 13, 3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And friends, I, I said it earlier, we talk too much. We don't talk when we should. We're not telling people of the eternal damnation that awaits them. We're not guilty of talking too much in that area, but about everything else, we just talk, 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 talk. And he's saying the religious person knows when to bridle his tongue and just shut up. To not be reckless with speech, to be slow to speak. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no one, let no, no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Well, is your tongue bridled? Does your speech back up your faith? But not only do we say prove it through our words, he says prove it through our ways. He's like, all right, because you can hear the person. The person could say, oh, I am. My tongue is bridled. I don't speak reckless. You know, once again, this person thinks they're religious. He's like, okay, think you're so religious. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and I want you to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why is that such a difficult thing? Because it's time-consuming, it's selfless, and let's be brutally honest, most of the time it's not, it's not broadcasted. Now, we've been able to, t- to pervert and twist this as Christians, that when we help widows and orphans, we broadcast it online to show, look at me, look at what we did. But they didn't have that online social media. So doing that was something where they had to step out of their life and they had to go these, the, the lowest of the low, you realize that, kind of the, the, the high of, of who people are in the society and culture. Widows and orphans are at the bottom of the barrel along with servants. And he's saying, I want you, if, you, if your religion's so real, I want you to visit these widows and orphans. And not just visit them like, hey, how are you doing? It's nice to see you. Leave. No, the visiting comes with the idea of loving on them, caring for them, meeting needs, ministering to them. Micah 6.8 speaks of this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is faith in action. This is not broadcasted, but this is real. So this is more than a politician kissing babies. No, this is you and I. If you really are religious, if you're really a follower of Christ, you get your hands dirty. You look out in our world, you look out in our culture, you see the needs, and you meet the needs, regardless if anybody sees it. 
I mean, that's why Christians should be some of the most active. I think what we've seen happen in the church, though, is we maybe really are pro-social justice stuff, but there's very little gospel. And I don't, I don't think it's either or. I think a gospel-minded, a follower of Christ, should be active in culture and society. We should be out there. We should be doing those things. We should be loving on widows and orphans because if we're not doing it, who is doing it? We, don't, we shouldn't be resting in the government, taking care of people. No, you and I, because we have the gospel, we get out there and we love on them. And it's intentional. But not only that, the, the loving on, what else does he say lastly? To keep oneself unstained from the world. What does that mean? It means you don't get polluted. You don't get dirty. I mean, we all know this. If you're wearing a nice outfit, what do you try to do the whole time you're wearing that outfit? Not get anything on it. What ends up happening most of the time? You get something on it. Guaranteed. And he's saying, don't let the world stain you. And it's more than just get a little dirty. It's conform you. It's misguide you. It's put you off in the wrong way. Well, does your love of others prove faith? Are you worldly? Have you been stained by this world? I hope we've seen in our time today that James has raised the bar of expectation. That God expects his children to walk in obedience. And that is the bare minimum, friends. So if you're a follower of Jesus, young or old, you've walked with the Lord for a week, for 50 years, it doesn't change the fact that we are called to obedience. The question, though, is how? And here's what I really want to convey as we wrap up our time this morning. This is not about you and I trying harder, doing more. It's not pulling up your bootstraps and being a better Christian. So if that's what you heard today, I apologize. I have missed the mark in trying to convey God's word to you. What we should see happening, I think, is illustrated well in ballroom dancing. Who here has ever went ballroom dancing? Anybody? Well, another Abby moment, one of our first dates, we went ballroom dancing. She was a phenomenal dancer. I don't know. I don't even remember. I'm just saying that to make up for the fact that I didn't sit with her in the airport, in the airplane. Um, but if you've ever watched ballroom dancing, good ballroom dancing, you got two partners, and the leader needs to lead, and the follower needs to follow. And you'll notice when the leader's not good at leading, the follower will step up and lead, and it'll end up being dysfunctional. If the leader's good, but the follower's not good at following, it leads to two left feet, and it just, but if you've ever watched, like, really good, like, high-end ballroom dancing, it is, it's a work of art, because the leader leads so well that it, it's as if they're guiding the follower, and the follower follows so well, there's no resistance. It's a fluid motion. The difference is whether or not the partners are fulfilling their roles in the relationship, if they're functioning as is designed. Well, friends, I think here's what happens in the life of obedience. You and I were dancers, but guess which role we are? We're the followers. You see, we have God, who is the best leader there ever has been on the dance floor. And he leads us through his word, he leads us by his spirit, and what you and I do in a life of obedience is we follow his leading. 
and it becomes seamless. It becomes uh, a, really a work of art when you see it happen. And that's what James is exhorting them, that this is rooted in Christ. This is rooted in the word, in the spirit. It's not about earning favor with the Lord. It's a life of honoring him. And as we follow him, he will lead us. He'll direct us, and it will be a life that is honoring of Christ, bringing glory to Christ, and it's really a glimpse of what the gospel can do in a life. So my hope and my prayer for all of us as as we leave here and as we go on into our work week and as we go home is that we would be beautiful dancers as we walk out in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that our standing before you is not based even slightly on us earning favor with you. That when we stand one day in uh, glory with you, you're not going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you did so good, I'm letting you in. No, it's because of Jesus. But we thank you, Lord, that even though uh, it's based on Jesus, you have also raised the bar of expectation that you desire us to be men and women and children who walk in obedience, who are intentional in our faith, who are slow uh, to, to, to speak, we're quick to listen, we uh, don't live lives of conformity to this world. So I just pray uh, desperately, God, that by your spirit, by your word, we would be a church and a people that honor you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.